This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about how to innovate by disrupting yourself, how to use the S-curve to understand your own career trajectory, why you should allow your brain to create obstacles for you rather than decrying the fact that it does, and why it's important to learn to plan not to plan. We're pleased to welcome Whitney Johnson back to the podcast to discuss those topics and more. Whitney joined us for the 23rd episode last year to talk about driving disruptive innovation and her first book, Dare, Dream, Do. Whitney's latest book, Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work, will be published on October 6th. Whitney is a founder and managing director of The Springboard Fund, a for-profit investment firm that invests in selected women-led, high-growth businesses. She's also the co-founder of Rose Park Advisors, where she and co-founder Clayton Christensen led the seed round for Korea's Coupang, currently valued at $2.2 billion. In addition to her books, Whitney contributes often to the Harvard Business Review, and she appears in publications like Fast Company. Whitney has received widespread recognition for her work and ideas, and she was named one of Fortune's 55 most influential women on Twitter in 2014. Welcome back to the podcast, Whitney. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. We're happy to have you back. So let's kick things off today talking about the new book. It's called Disrupt Yourself. And early in the book, you delve into the concept of the S-curve, which is described as an attempt to understand how, why, and at what rate ideas and products spread throughout cultures. So what does the S-curve have to do with personal disruption? Oh, great question. Well, as you just said, the S-curve, um, again, was developed by E.M. Rogers in 1962. And um, you typically use the S-curve to gauge how quickly an innovation will be adopted, especially a disruptive innovation. But one of the things that I discovered as I was really delving into these frameworks and applying them to, to companies was that they also um, applied to individuals and that specifically the S-curve could really help us understand the psychology of disruption. So just a quick recap for people who aren't familiar with it, you think about at the low end of the S-curve, typically growth is very, very slow. And then um, around 10 or 15% penetration, there's this tipping point and you enter into hypergrowth. And then at the top end of the curve, say 90%, you reach saturation and growth tapers off. Well, what does that mean then for us in understanding the psychology? Well, at the low end, if you know that growth is going to be quite slow, you may be working very, very hard and feel like you're making absolutely no progress. Well, you know, in fact, you are. And so this helps you avoid discouragement when you have this S-curve model in your, in your head. Then as you approach that tipping point, you're going to really accelerate into the sweet spot of competence, which also then leads to confidence. And this is the exciting, exhilarating part of the curve where all of your 
synapses are firing. And this is really ideally where you always want to try to, to be. And then at the top of the curve, once you approach that saturation, you know that you may be working very hard, but you're not going to be progressing that much. And things will actually be very easy for you, so you don't need to work hard. In fact, so easy that you may get bored. And if you get bored, your plateau can sometimes become a precipice. So by understanding the different aspects of the psychology of disruption, it's very, very helpful whenever you're trying to figure out something new. And also, if you're bored and wondering why, it helps you understand that it's actually time to jump to a new curve. And, and do you have any recommendations for, I imagine there aren't that many people that actually reach that plateau of, of complete mastery to the point where things become boring for them, but do you have any recommendations for what people can do if and when they hit that point? Oh, it's interesting that you say that, Will. So that that would suggest to me that perhaps you're in the sweet spot of your S-curve, but I do think that <laughs> I, people... I'm, I'm sure I'm not, actually... but I'm sure there are others are. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, no, I think that's good that you're in the sweet spot of, of you know, climbing the curve. I, I do think that people um, far more frequently than we would think hit the top of that S-curve. Um, if you think about the 10,000-hour rule, um, you know, you can, if you put in 40 hours a week, you're going to hit your 10,000 hours in four to five years. And most people work more than four to, you know, 40 hours a week, actually. And so if you think of it from the um, perspective of, of your work life, every three or four years, probably, you're going to reach some level of mastery. And so there, this has real implications for talent management. And so once you reach that level of mastery, it's important to be able to take on new roles or add new responsibilities or, or lateral or get promoted in order to be able to continue to move into the sweet spot of your curve. And so I would say, um, so that's certainly from a career standpoint or, you know, roles within a particular job, but then you also have a situation where um, people from an age perspective will hit, you know, 40 years old, for example, and sort of say to themselves, what am I doing with my life? And so that could also be a point in time where people need to also consider jumping to new curves. Yeah, hence hence the midlife crisis, I suppose. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. So you can do really stupid things when that happens, or again, the expert helps you understand, or developmental psychology also helps you understand that it's not necessarily that you need to get a new car or a new spouse. Um, you may just need to be trying some different things and jumping to some new learning curves professionally. Sure. So one of the things that you recommend the book's readers do is to take a new view of what it means to quote-unquote hire someone. What do you mean when you talk about things like hiring social media to do jobs for you? <laughs> yeah, so... This, this goes back to um, the, the theory of jobs to be done that was first um, uh, devised by Anthony Olwick and then was uh, popularized by Clay Christensen, which is that whenever we, um, you know, we think of hiring in the context of hiring a person, but actually whenever we buy a product, we're hiring it to do a job for us. And that job almost always has both a functional and an emotional component. So, for example, if you're, if you're buying a car, um, you may be buying it to get from point A to point B. But if you buy a Ferrari, it may be that you want 
you know, to do the emotional job of having a fast car or a, a uh, you know, glitzy car or whatever. And so that's the emotional aspect of that. And so if you think about, like you just asked me the question about social media, if I hire Twitter, for example, I'm hiring Twitter to be able to communicate people, but I'm also hiring it to help me prototype ideas in real time. I'm hiring it to figure out how to um, say what I think in 140 characters or less. I'm hiring it to be a pheromone to um, a social pheromone, if you will. And this is in the words of J.P. Rangaswamy, who used to be at Salesforce and now is at UBS, to attract people to me that have similar ways of seeing the world and for me to find them as well. So I'm actually, you know, hiring to do sort of a functional job of getting my ideas out there, but there's a lot of emotional jobs that I'm also hiring to do. So Whitney, climbing the S-curve means confronting and taking on risks. And you write in the book that there are two types of risks, competitive and market. So what's the difference between the two, and does one tend to lead to more success than the other? Yes. All right. So let me um, define the two for you. So competitive risk, um, if you've got one of your colleagues comes to you and says, you know what, there is this huge market opportunity out there, and I've got the protections to prove it, it's quite likely that someone has already scoped out that market. There is a kingpin. It's not you. And so you're going to have to gauge if you can compete and win. And so that's one kind of risk. The other kind of risk that I talk about is market risk. And that is, for example, a colleague comes to you and says, you know what? I don't have projections. I have no idea if there is even a market for this product, but I believe there's a job that people want done that's not getting done. Let's design a test to find out. That's actually taking on market risk. Now, our brains process market risk as being more risky than competitive risk because there feel, there's a sense of uncertainty. You don't know if there's a market. And so we say, well, I just want to take on competitive risk because I know there's a market. So our brains say take on competitive risk. But the theory of disruption, as, as you see outlined in the innovator's dilemma, is that market risk is actually less risky than competitive risk. And what Clayton saw in the analysis of the disk drive industry is that if you were willing to take on market risk, you were six times more likely to be successful. Now, you could still fail. The number went from 6% to 36%, but six times more likely is substantial. And the revenue opportunity for these um, people who were creating a market that did not yet before exist was 20 times higher. So whenever people are thinking about starting a business, um, trying launching a new product, or um, trying to you know, think about the next move in their career or inside of an organization, competitive risk feels less risky because it's more certain, but in fact, you want to look to create a market and play where other people are not playing. And you write in the book quite a bit about kind of the, the neuropsychology of, of innovation and, and just how our brains work. One line that really stuck out to me was, the human mind has astounding learning capabilities, but constantly seeks out constraints. So can you explain <laughs> can you explain why that is and are there any common or constant constraints that actually act as valuable tools of creation? Yeah, so isn't that interesting? 
how we uh, we think to ourselves, oh, I want unfettered access, I want unlimited freedom, wide open spaces. And yet, if you think about it, um, whenever we're trying something new, we actually want and we need feedback because that feedback gives us lots and lots of information. And um, I, I, one thing that I look at that I think is fascinating is skateboarders. We look at skateboarders, and they're really quick learners. And the reason they're quick learners is because every action and every move that they take gives them immediate feedback. And so if we can look at those constraints that we have that could be in the form of our time, you know, if you suddenly get a promotion and you have a lot less time than you did, you figure out a way to do things differently. So that lack of time is giving you information that's forcing you to rethink how you're doing business. It could be a lack of money, which is often the case for entrepreneurs. It may be a lack of buy-in. You can't get the people inside of your organization to buy into your brilliant idea. Well, that, again, is a constraint giving you information. You have to explain how you're doing something or why it matters in a different way than you are currently, or you don't have enough expertise. Well, sometimes the lack of expertise is what Wiseman talks about and what he's wants is actually a really good thing because you think about how to do things differently. And so, so constraints are actually very helpful to us and our brain wants and needs them. We want to measure things. Measurements are de facto constraints. And those constraints, they give us information. And these different constraints, whether it's buying, time, money, or expertise, all if we think about them not as something to overcome, but to use as a tool of helping us figure out how to get up our learning curve more quickly can, in fact, as you said, become a tool of creation. And one of the key inhibitors that you write about in the book of innovation is entitlement. So you describe a few different kinds of entitlement and the different poisons that they might bring. What are some of the most common types and how would you recommend avoiding them? Yeah, so I think one really common um, type is the um, is a sort of intellectual entitlement where, and I, I just actually alluded to this, this idea of buy-in, right? So we'll have this idea that we think is a really good idea, and we will tend to think, well, it's a good idea, and therefore all of my colleagues should just adopt it. Period. End of story. Um, marketing should get it. The you know um, finance people should get it. Well, that's a form of entitlement where you just, you know, you you exist, therefore you deserve buying for your idea. And so one of the things I I talk about as an antidote for that is to think about um, the fact that we frequently frame innovation as a battle. So David versus Goliath, disruptor versus disrupted. And so an antidote for that is to say to yourself, okay, let me watch the pronouns I'm using to describe the people from whom I need buy-in. Am I using me versus you and us versus them? And if you can reframe this idea as, let me think of this person that I'm looking at and saying, saying, you know, they're them as a we, and what's the win for you and me in this idea that's a way to battle entitlement and to see that the person in front of you is on a hero's journey just as you are and that if you will work together, if you will think about it as a we, you will move more quickly up the curve. So I think that's one form that's really important when we have innovative ideas. Another one that's a little bit um, it really, I think, falls in a similar vein is that when someone gets a promotion that we think is in fact well-deserved, 
we and we congratulate them, but in spite of us, we're we're sort of complaining and saying to ourselves, how come I didn't get that? And we don't feel as um, you know, sort of like we deserve it. Well, um, a lack of seeing the abundance um, for another person and seeing this as a zero-sum game is also a form of entitlement. And if we're willing to be excited for people around us and the success that they have, it allows us to be, um, that becomes an antidote for our own entitlement. And if we see other people's success as a win for us as well as for them, again, we have this sense of gratitude that allows us to acknowledge people around us, and when we acknowledge people around us, again, it becomes you and me, us, um, we, that allows us to move up the curve more quickly. And one of the main pillars of growth that you cite in the book is stepping down or back to then continue growth. It's something that you did in your own <laughs> in your own personal life, as a matter of fact, or your, yes. your, your work life, I should say. Uh, so it doesn't yeah. ne- doesn't necessarily mean stepping down from a newly appointed leadership position, but it can mean taking a pay cut or a job transfer. So h- how can stepping down or back help continue facilitating personal growth? Well, okay. So there's one, and I, I know you're not asking this, but I do. Th- I think you know. You know, every time if someone becomes a parent, especially a woman, you're just taking a step back, right, to grow because you've got to take maternity leave, et cetera, et cetera. I think you know all parents experience that a little bit, but that's not what you're asking. Um, I think there's a great example of, for example, um, Dave Blakely, who, you know, he's trained as an engineer. Very early on in his career, he could have, you know, continued to work his way up to manage technical staff, but instead he actually volunteered to become a, a, a project manager. And um, if you're an engineer, and there probably are a number of engineers listening to this, you know, they looked at this and they really scoffed at this decision and saw it as him trying to find some escape route from the rigor and detail of engineering. But Blakely intuitively understood that if he took this step back, it could allow him to begin to climb a new ladder and to develop additional skill sets beyond that of managing technical staff. And so when he wrapped up his 25-year tenure at IDEO last year, he was the head of all of technology strategy. So he had been able to really broaden his skill set. So you know if you're taking a step back because people think you're cuckoo bananas. You've either, you know, giving up stature, and it could be even your, your loved ones. You're giving up stature, you're giving up prestige, you're giving up money, but if you're thinking about this from a net present value perspective, you have this ability to think, okay, if I will take this step back, the slope of my curve is actually going to, or slope of my line or my trajectory is going to get deeper and take, allow me to intersect with where I really want to go. And so we're, we're in a culture, Whitney, where uh, failure is generally frowned upon, even though it can be an essential learning tool. So many motivators stress the importance of acknowledging your failures so that you, so that you can learn from them and then move on. But you take this one step further. You think that we should actually plan to fail. So why do you think planning to fail is the best way to deal with its inevitability? Well, you know, whenever you, you fail, you're on sort of this little mini curve, right? You're, you're on this curve, like mini, mini micro curve. You're on this curve and you, you fall off that curve. And so if you think about, you know, life is a series of learning curves with, you know, more and more mini curves like those matrushkas, the Russian matrushkas, like, you know, embedded within that, the, the, the learning and the failure and the learning and the failure is just absolutely part of the process. So, 
I think that we have to plan to do that, but I, but what I would say is even more important is that we need to not only plan to do that so that others will allow us to fail, but that we will allow the people who work with us to fail. I think that's the more important thing. I think that's part of the reason why all of the rhetoric around rhetoric around failure is, is sounding so hollow because there's this sort of implicit, you know, everyone embraces my failures, but I may not embrace yours. And so I think that one of the best ways that we can do this and, and figure out manage this as we're managing people is to be willing to allow the people around us to make mistakes. And if we're not willing to let them make mistakes, then we may not have hired the right person. And so we may need to ask that question because anybody that we're truly invested in their career, we will, when they make a good faith effort, and in fact, we will want them to push themselves hard enough that they do occasionally fall down, then we're invested in them. And, and we actually let people that we work with make mistakes all the time if you really think about it. So it's a matter of making sure you've got the people who work for you that you're enough invested in, that you're willing to let them make mistakes and, in fact, push them hard enough so that they do. And when they do, you say, good job. You figure this out. What did you learn? What's your recovery time? Let's keep going. And if enough managers will do that for the people on their watch, then you'll start to have organizations where this becomes, becomes the norm, not the exception. And, and moving up the S-curve is the, the general idea that everybody wants to, to get and follow, and it's, it's what you write about in the book. Uh, but you, you write about planning not to plan and instead being open to flexibility. So how can people plan to not plan and be open to what the universe throws at them? Yeah, so it's a little bit, of, it sounds kind of paradoxical, doesn't it? Um, so I think that one of the ways that I think about this is I think we, we need to have a why. We need to know what matters to us. But, um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, some wonderful literature by Rita Gunther McGrath about how you have to be able to, you know, ask yourself what needs to prove true for this, you know, to, to make sense. But I think in the planning not to plan at the most basic um, level is this willingness to say, okay, I know what my why is, but I also know that just like with an email packet that's trying to make its way from destination A to destination B, there are a gazillion routes that that email packet can take in order to get to destination B. And so if we're willing to say, okay, here's my why, and here's what I want to accomplish, but how I get there... I'm open to that, then we're much more likely to be successful. And, and I think, you know, if you, if you consider, you know, Elon Musk, for example, his big why is environmentally friendly technology. But how that has manifested has been very different, you know, all the way from, from solar panels to electric cars to going to, you know, space travel. And so he's got the same why, but how he's getting there has changed over time and, and will continue to, to uh, iterate. So, Whitney, you just talked about finding your why. You close out the book with talking about finding your North Star and some great examples of people who struggled a little bit through the process of finding their true calling and eventually became wildly successful. Are there one or two stories from the book that stand out for you that you can share? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one person that I think really stands out in that respect, I mean, I know I just mentioned Elon Musk, but then there's also Kate Koplovitz, who, you know, she's got a fascinating story where she, you know, when she was in college, she read about Arthur C. Clarke and geosynchronous, you know, satellites and and eventually came up with the, you know, two revenue stream cable model and then founded USA Networks and Sci-Fi Channel and, and under her watch was able to grow that company to to $4.5 billion. Well, her why has always been parity, pay parity for women. Well, if you look at that, so she built, built this big business, it's $4.5 billion. Then she... Um, when she leaves that, she has Bill Clinton say to her, you know, can you help, you know, advance the cause of women? And so at that point, only 1.7% of all venture funding was going to women. She says, you know what, I'm going to start Springboard, this accelerator. And so that was her why. Her why was a period for women. Over the last 15 years, over 5,000 women have been screened or women-owned businesses and Nearly 600 businesses have come through that program. And then her why continues as she invests, is now investing in women and has started something called the Springboard Fund. And so she's had a very consistent why over the course of her, you know, four-decade career, which is parity for women, but it's come in very different ways, beginning with her launching of USA Networks and the Sci-Fi Channel and really being a, a trailblazer for women in, in broadcasting. And then it's launched at Springboard and now the launch of a fund that will invest in women. So I think that's a really great il- illustration of how her why has been very consistent, but how she's, her, her how has been very different. Okay, nice. Well, that's a great note to close on. Uh, Whitney, thanks so much for coming on. The book is called Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work, and it will be in bookstores on October, is it 6th? 6th. October 6th, and you can pre-order it now. Very nice. Well, Whitney, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Great to have you back, and great food for thought for for all our listeners out there. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about Whitney Johnson, you can visit her website, www.whitneyjohnson.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at at @johnsonwhitney, and you can pre-order her latest book, Disrupt Yourself, on Amazon.com or her website. Thanks once again to Whitney Johnson for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have Neil Doshi and Lindsay McGregor on the podcast to talk about innovation and total motivation. We'll talk about their forthcoming book, Prime to Perform, how to build the highest performing cultures through the science of total motivation. We'll talk about things like how to spot the worst motivation for getting a job done, why culture might not want to eat strategy for breakfast anymore, and how to help employees long for the sea in their own ways. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com.